Um, so uh, I think it's been a couple weeks since I've been here, um, but I'm here today to um, kind of close this up on First Peter. Uh, there's there's one more sermon on First Peter, um, which is by two next week. Um, so recently, an acquaintance uh, that I know um, through a friend was telling me about her experiences um, studying in London. Uh, she was a, a graduate student at the time, um, postgraduate, and uh, will, uh, had worked on a team project in her final, final semester. She told me that she was disappointed because um, her partners didn't seem to work as hard as her and uh, didn't seem to care as much as her. And so in the end, she um, basically completed the project by herself, most of it by herself. Um, but uh, this completion came at a really great cost because she had essentially destroyed those relationships. And also, because she worked so hard, she pushed herself so hard, she actually had um, heart palpitations from uh, staying up uh, two nights in a row to finish the project. She has since graduated, and um, though the experience is behind her, she told me that she really couldn't understand why other students were not like her why they didn't care as much, why they didn't work as hard. She insisted that because she was such a hard worker that she expected other people to be like her, to care as much as her. And um, I mean, you know, many of us, we have worked with other people in teams, right? And we don't like, we don't enjoy when teammates don't, don't try, we don't, we don't particularly enjoy that. But after carefully listening and kind of reflecting on her experiences, I, I, was, I, was, I was reminded that, you know, that it's important that we try to understand other people's experiences and other people's, um, other people's expectations because they may not be the same as what we hold exactly, right? So I said to her, I said, it may be true that in your previous schoolwork experiences, you have been very capable and worked very hard and, and always aim for the, the best scores, but it is impossible to be flawless in your entire life. There will be times in the future, maybe when you're in your work, when other people are more capable than you, that they care more than you, more intelligent than you, and even more hardworking than you. I asked her, when those times do come, do you wish the other person would be more understanding of your situation? And she, she said yes, she did. Raise your hand if you have ever hurt a relationship with a family member, a coworker, or a friend because of your pride. If you can recall a time when you hurt someone. Oh, we have a lot of very honest people, <laughs> sincere people here. I wasn't expecting that many hands to go up. Now, I'll flip this around, okay, and let's see how we do here. Raise your hand if you've been hurt by another person because of their pride. Oh, okay, okay, not bad. Okay, we got a couple here, good, good, okay. Recall that experience when you were hurt by the other person. Think, think back on it, right? And what was that experience like? Do you, do you recall the, the pain that you felt when, when that other person hurt you because of their pride? 
Did you feel misunderstood? Did you feel that they didn't really listen to what you had to say? They didn't really understand you? And, and that, led to, that led to pain. I think the point is that, the point of the story and the questions is to highlight the fact that relationships, healthy relationships, and thriving communities require a strong sense of mutual humility. Humility is an important ingredient to those relationships. And as we will see today, relationships, when they're strained and when communities come under stress, it is doubly important to remain um, humble towards each other. So like I said earlier, today's verses come from the final chapter of First Peter epistle. If you recall, the letter was written to various Christians living in um, different places in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is basically the, the, the region that's in Western Turkey today. And to these people, a central issue that they faced was the problem of suffering. In light of this suffering, the, the, the letter addresses a very important question, a core question, which is, how should we live as Christians? And although our situation is quite different from theirs, it's not a you know, one-to-one, and the type of suffering is very difficult to parallel, we will see that these words remain important to us today. I'm going to read um, the first half. So I split this up into two parts for us to look at. Now, as an elder myself and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend to the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must subject to the, must subject to the elders. And all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In this first section, the author writes to two groups of people, as we see, the elders and you who are younger. In the original context, these are likely terms, different terms, to differentiate people by two characteristics. The first is age, and the second is the authority in the church. I've read many commentaries about this discussion. There's a debate about it. But some are convinced that both groups, the elderly and those who are younger, exercise some form of official authority in the church. For example, elders might be the equivalent of a senior pastor uh, today. And maybe those who are younger might be something like an associate pastor or a music director, music pastor. So usually someone who is a bit younger in age and has a little bit less experience. However, not everyone is convinced by this interpretation of these two terms. There's another one, 
basically, other group of people that insist that elders, the term elders here, were not office holders, official office holders in the church, but rather were respected and wise individuals who came out of um, families that were highly respected in the community. And because of this respect that they had for the church, uh, that, they were, that they had with the church, they were given informal authority. There's also evidence that this younger group um, does not, doesn't mean the lower level officials in the church. Now, you can you know, take either view, I think is fine, but you know, I personally am convinced that the latter view makes a little more sense because this section of the letter, it, it ha if the former were to be true, this particular section of the letter would have to be written only to official office holders in the church, right? Or the other alternative is that everyone in the church is an official office holder, which is kind of strange in my opinion. So I think the latter makes more sense because scholars have noted that churches were usually divided by age groups, sometimes two or three groups. And in particular, one scholar says that um, this younger people idea, this younger group, um, if, we, if we take into account a Jewish thinking, then this younger group was probably comprised of people who were age 30 and under. Um, I'm looking around, and uh, by that standard, most of us would probably be elders, right? Uh, very, very few younger people were all elders in some capacity, right? Um, and so uh, we have significant responsibility in the church. Um, I'm older than 30, so I'm an elder too. Um, so interestingly, we have more shepherds here. Now that's a good thing, I think, because what that means is that our responsibilities are spread out more, right? We have more workers, <laughs> less people to serve. That's a good thing. So now that, you know, we have kind of been given this responsibility, this authority to shepherd people. How do we use this authority? Um, should we misuse it for our own benefit, our, our own pride to make ourselves feel great and happy? You know, some, some have, you know, in hushed tones accused people, at least in some of the churches I've been, have accused others of wanting power for their own personal, you know, kind of feel good. But no, but no, the verses remind us that that is not the answer. The elders must serve others wholeheartedly. They must be good examples, and they must not abuse power. Unfortunately, I think in today's world, power is almost synonymous with abuse, both inside the church and outside the church. And, you know, I, there's so many examples, right, from the scandals that followed uh, Ravi Zacharias's death um, to the recent um, downfall of FTX, crypto uh, platform, trading platform, and its founder, um, same Bankman-Fried. Just, we're constantly disappointed by the failures of those who lead in various uh, institutions. According to one University London uh, College, University College London professor, um, he attributes this particular problem in contemporary life because, due to the fact that human institutions don't do a very good job at screening out people who are high on narcissism and Machiavellianism. The former are those who thrive on attention and admiration, and they need it. 
and the latter are prone to being deceptive and cunning and manipulative. Such people tend to pursue power for their own sake in contrast to what the verses tell us today for the sake of others. Maybe, Pla maybe Plato had it right when he's, he expressed the idea that the most important qualification for a leader is to not want to be a leader. And that's, um, that particular idea was, um, was I heard in the, movie, in the movie Two Popes. It was very interesting. I've always remembered it for many years now. These verses remind us that elders, and by extension, all people who hold authority over others, ought to willingly exercise power in an honorable, other-serving, example-setting way. Many of us have been Christians for a long time, so I think it will be okay to ask this question, but can you recall in your own life some Christians who have exercised power, who have you seen exercise power in this way, in an honorable, other-serving way? I'm sure we all can think of such role models. I myself have been very fortunate to know these kind of people in my life. Kind, gentle, humble, encouraging, helpful mentors who have shown me how authority is to be properly used. The verses spend most time talking to this elderly group, and I think that's fair because they're the ones who hold most of the power and exercise it. But there is a note to the younger people. The younger people ought to be uh, submit to the elderly, not just because of their age, not because the fact that they hold power, but because they have more wisdom they have more experience in managing the various things in life. And younger people maybe are a little bit headstrong, a bit more, you know, um, a bit more rushing to get things done. They will be advised to listen to the elder people. Finally, the author addresses the entire church as a whole to be humble towards each other. Now, I, I have. I was thinking about, I've been thinking about what is humility, right? And I talked to my wife about it, and kind of we just we talked a little bit about it. But I have a kind of a formulation. It's not great, I think, but let's see, you know, if it's, if it's helpful in any way, right? So my formulation of humility is a combination of two beliefs. Individual people, you know, people, we hold these two beliefs. The first is that I am a person not an all-knowing God. I'm limited. There's things I don't know. There's things I know. There's things I don't know. And the second one is that you, the other person, you are a person loved by God. I think that the combination of these two ideas in a person will help us to, when we talk with other people and we engage with them, we can say, you know, I don't have all the answers, and I would love to hear what you think. Isn't that really important in relationship, don't you think? Like, you know, being married, I, I always read, you know, conflicts between spouses happening because both sides think they're right. And, and I, think, I think that's what happens, right? But, but how great would it be if 
if we could all say, we could say, you know, I don't know everything. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what your reason is, but I would love to hear it. Tell me about it. Share with me your experiences. And to, to draw back to the original um, story that I started with, I think that my acquaintance there, I think she would benefit greatly from a mindset like this. To know that teammates that she works with, they have, they have other thoughts too, and they have stuff to contribute. And a good team seeks to kind of draw out each contribution, a contribution of each person. Humility is the kind of the central point of this, uh, this, this text here, I think. It is, the, it is the, the key to understand this text. And humility is really well, for Christians, we can draw to the humility of Christ when he, in humility, put himself on the cross, let himself go on the cross. So that is an image, an idea, a story that we can all draw to, to understand humility. The author then moves on to another kind of topic. He continues here to address the rest of the, the entire church and all members in the church. And we have moved away now from the elder and the younger language and return to general encouragement towards the church. Now, earlier I mentioned that suffering was the common theme or common issue that these Christians, the original audience, uh, they faced. So we have to keep in mind that these verses, in particular these verses, were written in the context of suffering. And so I think it's important to maybe um, have some comments about suffering from the New Testament. So, suffering. What does the New Testament say about suffering? The New Testament is very interesting because it rejects the idea that those who do not suffer are righteous. It rejects this idea. It also rejects the idea that those who suffer are wicked. In a sense, what the New Testament has done is that it says that sin can cause suffering, but all those who, but, uh, sorry, sin can cause suffering, but sin is not the only explanation of suffering. It is not the only explanation. And if we think about it, it makes sense, right? There's innocent suffering. For example, Christ, he's the best example. There's also um, the concept of suffering can be, can be the will of God, can be, his, can be part of his plan, though God also gives meaning and strength to those who face suffering. Finally, the New Testament also highlights this idea of cosmic conflict between the evil one and God, in which the evil one, which we typically call Satan, he um, he seeks to hinder God's plan, seems to stop it somehow, disrupt it. According to verse 8 here, oh, actually, um, I forgot to read it. Let me read it. So we think about suffering as we, you know, we think about these verses in the context of suffering. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time, 
Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will forever restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. There is a cosmic battle, right, between the evil one and God. The evil one seeks to disrupt God's plan. And one way he does this, according to verse 8, is that he devours individual Christians. He seeks to devour. But what does this figurative language mean? What does it mean for Satan to devour Christians? The verb devour and also swallow down, it was used to describe the enemies of Israel who were seeking to destroy God's people. Therefore, it could mean physical destruction, the actual destruction of a group of people. But also, when we read it in light of verse 9, resist him, steadfast in your faith, it could also mean a kind of spiritual destruction, right? A destruction of a person's faith in Christ. It seems to me that the author doesn't care to differentiate between physical and spiritual destruction. What does this mean? This means that for the, in the author's mind, it's probably likely that these two are basically the same, one and the same. Physical destruction is spiritual destruction. Spiritual destruction is physical destruction. It's a very, a very strange concept, right? Because we think, well, you know, there are people who were once Christians and then stopped believing, but they're not destroyed. But the author seems to just suggest that it's the same kind of destruction. It's destruction that, that the evil one is trying to, trying to do. Both of these consequences, physical and spiritual destruction, seem to be things that the author wants his readers to avoid at all costs, especially in the light of suffering, because suffering can promote this kind of thinking. It's really strange because um, I've given a couple of sermons in the past few months here, and suffering is always uh, keeps coming up for some weird reason. I don't know why. But uh, I remember one, in one uh, sermon on uh, Nehemiah, I was talking about the importance of community in facing suffering. And um, I, think, I think the reason why it keeps coming up is because, well, maybe it's not, it's not related. Maybe it's not, a, it's not directly related. But um, uh, for those of you who are familiar with what I do, um, I have been suffering quite a bit from various things, so I'm a very appropriate person to speak on this topic. <laughs> um, it, 
it's, it's hard because these verses remind us of a really important aspect to suffering, which is that God cares for us. He, he cares for us. And while we are amidst suffering, we may not feel it. We, 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 cannot, we cannot say, in our experience, we say, yes, I'm suffering, but God cares for me. We, we can't say that. And, and maybe even, maybe, we would go even so far as to say, I don't know if he cares. I don't know if he cares. This is moving beyond experience and, beyond, and now moving to the cognitive, right? Thinking. We may even forget that he cares. We may think that we are suffering because of something we did wrong and that God is punishing us for something. But we have to remember that earlier I talked about suffering, right? And that the New Testament has broken the sin-suffering parallel. It has shattered it. Suffering happens for many reasons beyond sin. Many reasons. Some of it which we will never understand. That's why it's so important that even in our suffering, we start with the belief that God is with us and he sees us. He cares for us. And maybe we can experience it as a process rather than as simply something we believe, but something we can experience gradually day to day that he does care for us. I don't think this fully resolves the mystery of why God allows suffering. I remember um, two years ago, I visited my pastors in San Diego and uh, had lunch, dinner, dinner with a pastor and his wife. Um, they're great people. I love them so much. But um, I remember during dinner, I was asking. I was preaching on, I had preached on suffering like two weeks before I met them. <laughs> What's going on here? Um, I, I asked them, I, I said, what do you, what do you think, um, what do you, what do you think about suffering? Why do you think it happens? And uh, I remember, I remember pastor, um, he, he said, he, he, he was like, oh yeah, let me tell you about it. There's a doctrine, you know, of the sin, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. it was very theological, right? <laughs> and he spoke at, quite at length about it. And I was like, um, yeah. Makes sense. Right? I remember that. <laughs> um, then, then the pastor's wife, she said, she said, you know, it's a mystery. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was like, oh yeah, yeah that's, that's helpful. <laughs> it, it is a mystery, right? And I think, you know, in that short, it is a mystery. Four words. She, she explained suffering better than the, the, all the theology stuff. Yeah, I think, I think I, 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 you know, after two years of experiencing my experiences and, you know, seeing, seeing the world and, and seeing all the suffering that happens in this world, I, I, think, I think we do have to kind of, um, there's a part of me that really wants to just say, we don't know. Um, it really is confusing and, you know, we just, we're not God. We don't know. You know just, we just don't know.
we, we live with it. It's something that we just live with, like, like, we, like we breathe air. It's just something we live with. But, but these verses give us something, a Christian response, a Christian resource to respond to suffering. And it is that as we are in it, we have to remind ourselves and, and be attentive to the Spirit's working in our lives that He cares for us, that He loves us, and that we can experience that care and love. I want to conclude by returning to the, the overarching, overarching question that this epistle attempts to answer, which is, how should we live? The, the letter has provided many aspects of how to live, how to relate to other people, how to relate to non-believers, how to live in community. But today's verses center on the concept that we should live with humility. We should be alert towards evil. And above all, we should remember that we do not suffer alone, but we suffer alongside other people, other Christians, and all of us, we are held in the warmth embrace of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter, which is not just a letter to the original audience, but is a letter across time which tells us about you and how you care for those who suffer. Lord, help us to remember that and to experience it and in turn to help others who suffer. We thank you and we ask that you please watch over all of us and those who suffer, our brethren across the world and in time. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.